Trust is your foundation. It's in your systems, your strategies. It's in your mission, your vision, your values. It is re-communicated in every company newsletter, on your website, in every town hall. The CEO models it in her or his behavior. You right wrongs, you offer apologies, you admit when you made a mistake, you call a client up and say this product wasn't ready, whatever it is, right? Is when trust is your foundation, it permeates everyone's behavior. Successful brands are rooted in purpose and driven by the potential to make a positive impact on their customers. Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose with Amy Austin. Each week, Amy brings you practical advice to embrace the power of purpose in all aspects of your business and transform it into the central storyline for your branding and marketing strategies. Welcome to today's episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. My guest today is Scott J. Miller, and he is formerly with the Franklin Covey Company. Scott and I connected a couple of months ago when he reached out to me and said, hey, I would love to be on your show, which I was delighted once I dug into who he was and started finding that out of who is this person? And I was like, yes, I would like to have you on my show. And so here we are today and we're going to have a fun conversation because the last conversation I had with him was great. So I know this one will be too. So Scott, can you tell my guests or my listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Amy, nice to be with you. Thank you for accepting my overture to come on your podcast. Honored to be here. So my name is Scott Miller, and I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, with my wife and three young boys who are six, eight, and 10. Don't do that. Don't have three boys in five years. That was a mistake. <laughs> have three boys in like eight years, maybe. As you mentioned, I have worked with the Franklin Covey Company for 25 years. I just left formally about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Stepped down as the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership. I was the Chief Marketing Officer for about eight years, their first and only ever CMO. Still in good standing. I still host their podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. It's the world's largest um, distributed and subscribed to leadership podcast after um, two and a half years. I write books for them. I speak for them. And I still, as a contractor, lead their thought leadership strategy, their book strategy, public relations and such. But um, I wanted to pursue some entrepreneurial ventures. So after 25 years with Franklin Covey and four before that with the Disney company, I am now working on my own as a speaker, a writer, podcast host, and uh, I've launched some career modules and a bunch of books that are coming out in 2021 and 2022. And so I'm, I'm uh, got a lot of irons in the fire. I'm using this entrepreneurial opportunity to teach my three boys what it's like to own a business. You don't have a right to exist. You have to keep earning the right to exist by treating your customers well and honoring your promises. So I'm about, like I said, two weeks into an entrepreneur and so far, so good. That's great. So Scott, I know we've, we had talked about branding as being the, the main topic that we would discuss, but I want to I want to ask you one other question. What is it about being an entrepreneur that you hope to pass on to your, on to your boys? You know, a variety of practical lessons, right? Like I mentioned, my boys are six, eight, and 10. So that's like kindergarten, third grade, and fifth grade. And for all their life, which has been short, they know that dad leaves the house and goes to some campus somewhere and does something as an executive. And I come home, you know, 12 hours later. And I was raised the same way. My father was a mid-level executive at a defense contractor. And I think once in 32 years did I ever actually know what he did. You know, you had to have a security clearance, but you know, I had no idea what they did other than they built missiles, right? And they built lasers. And so I wanted my sons to have a better sense for what it was that I did. And as a chief marketing officer, I had a broad role, right? Writing books and speaking and editing and creating print and digital and conventions and trade shows and websites and all sorts of things. So I wanted my boys to roll up their sleeves and I wanted them to know what's it like to code HTML and create a website? What's it like to tape video? What's it like to produce a podcast? What's it like to issue an invoice and then, you know, collect the money hopefully from your client and then go drive it to the bank and deposit. I wanted them to see the underbelly, the good and the bad of what it was like to have a job and to see all the sides of business, all the emails that come in and 
you know, the responsible use of social media, all the aspects of being an entrepreneur and targeting your market and what it's like to write a book and what is the process of working with a publisher and an agent and an editor. And so my boys are getting a crash course education on not just what it's like to be an entrepreneur, but what it's like to build a business and work in a business and recognize that it's not all glamorous, right? A lot of it is prospecting and, and um, late nights and early mornings. I do a lot of keynotes in the Middle East. So they see me get up at one o'clock in the morning and deliver, you know, a two-hour keynote from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. and then do more things. So I really wanted my boys to appreciate hopefully the work ethic that I have and I'm passing on to them and just see all, all sides of the business. I'll tell you, Amy, I was in my late 20s until I really understood that organizations are organized into operations and innovation and supply chain and marketing and finance and human resources and sales. I didn't understand the organizational architecture of companies. I mean, I had a class in it, right? I was probably like a junior or something, but having a professor quiz you on a book you read is different than seeing it live, right? So I hope that the boys are going to have a better early sense of what they might want to do and what might they not want to do from working in the firm with me. I say firm, a firm of one. <laughs> that's okay. They, they will. I think that's... That's a long answer. I apologize. Uh, no, I think it's a great answer, though, because as you were saying that, I've also thought about with my journey, with my daughter, who is 14, she has a better understanding now of what it is that I do yeah. than what she would have if I still left and went to work at the hospital I used to work at. Yeah, yeah. You know, she she yeah. gets it. She's right above me as we speak doing online classes. Yeah, I just yeah. sent her a text and said, I need to make sure that you're extra quiet for an hour yeah. or so because yeah. I'm recording a podcast. Yeah. Okay, no problem. But if she well, was here. The, that's girls. My boys would have said, I'll be right down to be on camera. Right? So that's the benefit of girls. One of the things that I would imagine that you're busy doing is also protecting your brand as you make this transition from being with Franklin Covey and being known for being with Franklin Covey yeah. into yeah. now being known as your own yeah. entity. Uh -huh. Yeah. And back when we, you and I talked about about what we would discuss today, we, we came to a, a unified agreement that there really is no such thing as rebranding. And my thought on that is this, is rebranding is a horrible word because it gives the impression that we are doing something very significant with our brand when we really aren't. Most of the time, all we're doing is changing the logo, the colors, and maybe giving a refresh on the standard look and feel of what your printed or marketing materials would be. Rebrand doesn't exist because your brand is the very fiber of who you are and what you do and why you do it. So how are you making that transition now from being your identity in Franklin Covey to your identity as Scott Miller, author, speaker, podcast host, and building up your own business? Has that been challenging for you? Well, that's daunting. <laughs> well, now that you put it that way, I regret it. <laughs> you know, Sorry. Amy, it's, it's, it's an insightful and lesson for all of us. Before I answer that, you know, I, I agree with you. Rebranding is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, I, I have a marketing background, obviously the chief marketing officer of a global public company, Franklin Covey. For those who may not know, of course, that's the company Dr. Stephen Covey created, you know, from the seven habits of highly effective people. We're the world's most prominent, well-known global leadership development firm in the world. And, you know, we've had some rebranding issues, to quote, you know, that, that misnomer, because we're known for two things. We're known for the Franklin Planner, like the paper Franklin planning tool, which exists still, but we sold that business over a decade ago, and we're known for the seven habits. And, of course, we're much more than that. For, for us, we've always had this sort of challenge on how do we shape the perception ethically, accurately of our clients that we were that and we're not ashamed of that. We know that got us here, but that isn't going to, quote, take us there. So we've undergone a, a long-term exercise of figuring out how do we accurately shape the perception of our brain with clients. I, I only know of one successful rebranding exercise, and that was NCR. You know, NCR stands for National Cash Register. 
right? I mean, oh, they right. were a cash <laughs> register company like 30 years ago. And I think now NCR is like, an, you know, they're a digital information technology automation firm, right? And I'm sure they sell computers that take cash, but that's one of the only rebrandings that I really know that's dramatically successful. But to your question, it's a delicate route for me because 25 years in a firm, 10 of them as a public officer, and of those 10, five or six of them as a best-selling author and the host of our podcast, and a very prominent person, it's not easy to separate myself from the brand. And it isn't like I quit and left. I mean, the CEO and the board and I had a six-month conversation around my departure. They didn't kick me out and I didn't quit. We amicably separated, but I'm still working with them on contract, right? In fact, my separation agreement allows them to still approve all of my business opportunities. Oh. So I, mean, I, I can't have a garage sale without Franklin Covey approving it because I'm part of their brand. You know, most people just quit and, you know, move on and they may have a separation agreement or a non-compete. But so for me, it's been a bit unique. Because uh, you know, after 25 years, I'm heavily invested in their brand. And they're heavily invested in ours, in mine. I say ours, and my wife is my partner. So I'm working very carefully to build and carve out a brand for myself. Because what's interesting is Franklin Covey is a fairly conservative brand. Yeah. Very conservative, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's founded in Utah. This is not the most liberal state in the nation by any stretch. And I think that has served the company well. And my brand is not so conservative. I tend to be a little more loud and boisterous and opinionated, and I'm a bit of a bull in a china shop, and I think that served them well, but I have to be thoughtful about, as I become a little more independent of Franklin Covey, that my brand only helps them. So it's a unique path for me to carve. That I'm really, really thoughtful. I'm thoughtful about the, the way in which I build my brand and carve out my own niche, because you know I won't always be associated with the firm. I hope I am for a long time, but you know, 10 years from now, will I still be a member of their family? I don't know, but um, my brand is different than theirs. And my brand is a little more progressive, a little less conservative. And uh, so it's an awkward path, but awkward in a delicate way, not awkward in an unfortunate way. Most people just cut the tie and move on. And I think both of us didn't want to do that. I wanted to go become more adventurous and they wanted me to do that and still do it responsibly so that I could, you know, be a good face for their firm. And so I feel great about where we landed, but it came from a lot, hours and hours and hours of conversations. Well, if this, then that, and if this, then what, and what if this happens, right? And at the end of the day, I had three or four of my very best friends in the firm on the opposite side of the legal agreement, right? With the company's best interest in mind. And they tried to argue for me and I tried to argue for them. And because we have both had an abundance mindset, I think our brands will work well in tandem, but separately. When I asked that question, I didn't expect the the depth of sharing that you just <laughs> did. So I appreciate that because I think it's important to realize that when someone who is a prominent figure with an organization leaves, yeah. they're still going to carry the image of the brand that they yeah. were part of yeah. with yeah. them for a long time. I mean, think yeah. about, think about a, a sports analogy is what comes to mind for, right away. I'm a huge Los Angeles Lakers fan. So Magic Johnson is still the huh. face of that brand for yeah. me because that yeah. was when that was when I watched all the time. Yeah. Now he's not played for 25 20 years, years probably, right. but he's still the face of the brand for me, even though he's not directly involved as much. I mean, it kind of wavers up and down as to how yeah. involved he is yeah. with the team. But my point is, is that he still becomes the face of the brand, even though he is not officially part of the business. You are much the same way and will be for a period of time for people who recognize you as the role that you've played with Franklin Covey. It's true. And I, and I take that responsibly, right? I take that with a lot of um, gravitas, right? It's, I, I, you know, I could have just quit and said, great luck to you. I'm going to go do this, right? And gone and done my own thing. Now I was an officer in the firm. And so I would have had, you know, I do have and, and would have had a non-compete agreement. But, you know, speaking of brand, I have a brand and I have a reputation. And I take that extremely carefully. And I also know that they have a brand. And I have um, 
a responsibility to them. I don't burn bridges and they don't burn bridges, right? And someone really wise said this to me. There's a man named Chester Elton. Chester Elton's a very famous author, podcaster, and speaker. He, he writes in the space of gratitude and around customer and employee engagement and rewards. He's written a bunch of books. And Chester told me a year ago, he said, Scott, your departure will turn solely on your relationship and the mutual trust or lack thereof with you and the CEO. And he was absolutely right. The CEO and I are, 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 are good friends. I mean, I report to him, right? I mean, I served at his pleasure and I still report to him. And he's a very prominent person in the industry and a shrewd businessman, a very ethical. But at the end of the day, he's absolutely right, right? My, my departure was done because Bob and I decided we would do it in a way that was not just amicable, but super respectful, and also took in mind the bigger, the bigger need, which was, you know, there are shareholders, there are employees, there are customers, right? There is a global brand that, that company has built. And, and I don't have a fiduciary responsibility anymore, but I feel like I have an ethical responsibility to make sure that the company, which of course it will, thrive in my absence, right? No, no, no individual is a company by any stretch, but I, I care about them and they care about me. When, that, when that's your intent, it'll all work out. Exactly. Let's talk then a little bit about what are the key elements of brand as you see them? What's, what's important for you as an individual to build a brand or for a company to build out their brand? What are the things that you feel are really critical to keep in mind and have, have that agreed upon understanding throughout the entire organization that this is Scott Miller? or this is Franklin Covey, or this is IBM? Well, there's one foundational bucket, and it's universal. Regardless of your industry, regardless of whether you're an upstart or you're a 40-year-old you know, firm, whether you're a Fortune 5000 or you're a solopreneur, and that's trust. It all, it all comes down to, a, are you building a foundation of trust? Do you say and do what you say you're going to do? Do you deliver on your promises? That's it. I mean, it's basically it is, are you a trustworthy person? Have you behaved yourself into a reputation of being trustworthy? Whether it be your toothpaste or your over-the-counter medication or your ability to deliver a keynote or your, your knitting an Afghan on Etsy, whatever it is, right? Is, are you trusted? Right. Um, my wife is a stay-at-home mom, full-time house manager, stay-at-home mom, does not work outside the home. And like a lot of stay-at-home parents, she has a tiny little you know, side business, I wouldn't even call it a side hustle on Poshmark, right? Poshmark is a, a website where she, you know, sells her, her used clothes, which used means she wore them twice, by the way, and all that kind of stuff, right? And my wife, who is um, never really had a professional role, small time out of college, um, she is vigilant about making sure that when she sells a top for $45, right? It is pressed, it is cleaned, it is folded. She wraps it in tissue. She puts a thank you note in and she makes sure that it mails that day. And my wife's never gonna be an entrepreneur. She's never gonna have a six figure Poshmark business. But my wife is, is intent on making sure that it ships that day. And, that's, and that, that, that is the most basic brand lesson there is, right? Is you do what you say you're going to do. Deliver and on when you the don't, promise that you're right, making. And when you don't, you are transparent, you are vulnerable, you tell the truth, you don't spin, you don't posture, you don't position, you don't obfuscate. You send the person an email and say, I owe you an apology. I told you I would mail this yesterday and I let you down. I apologize, I own it, no excuse. It was shipped this morning. Please forgive me. It's being tracked. I will let you know where it is and when to expect it. My sense is it's going to be a day late than I, than I, than I promised. I mean, just that small stuff, right? That's really the foundation of building a brand. Now, beyond that, which may sound rudimentary to people, but it's not. Because when trust is your foundation, it's in your systems, your strategies, it's in your mission, your vision, your values. It is re-communicated in every company newsletter, on your website, at every town hall. The CEO models it in her or his behavior. You right wrongs. You offer apologies. You admit when you made a mistake. 
you call a client up and say this product wasn't ready, whatever it is, right? Is when trust is your foundation, it permeates everyone's behavior. Here's the next thing I think that is foundational building a brand. And that is really understanding, articulating what is your value proposition. Again, that's whether you are, whether you are you know, knitting an Afghan on Etsy or whether you're Ericsson and you're providing 5G technology. What is your value proposition? Where's your expertise? What is your differentiator? That right. may sound like a marketing course, but as every company becomes a technology company, as every company becomes a technology company, I don't care if you're a hospital, I don't care if you're Chick-fil-A, I don't care if you're Nordstrom, every company is becoming a technology company. I don't know the difference between AT&T Wireless and Verizon Wireless. I have no idea. I have no idea. Me neither. <laughs> I guess cricket is for people maybe that may have lower credit scores or want a pay plan that they control their minutes. I mean, maybe I can tell you the difference between cricket and AT&T. I have no idea the difference. So brand differentiation is vitally important. And, the, and what most organizations fall into the trap is their messaging is all about them, right? Is here's how much we spend on R&D. Here's our journey. Here's our logo. Here's our tagline. Here's what we do. When they create their messaging and their branding without the customer front and center. Yeah. I learned this from Donald Miller, you know, the famous marketing branding guy. I was on his podcast. Most of your guests or most of your listeners will know him as the author of Story Brand. Yep. Politics aside, if you look at the 2016 presidential race, Donald Trump's message was what? Right, make America great again. What was Hillary Clinton's message? Couldn't tell you. What was Jeb Bush's message? I don't remember other than it he wasn't put an one. exclamation That's exactly point at it. the end of his name. <laughs> it's an exclamation point, right. Hillary's was, I'm with her. Oh, yeah, that's right. It had an arrow pointing. What hers probably should have said is, she's with us. But Donald Trump's was, make America great again. Whether you voted for him or not, I don't care. And that's not the point of the podcast. But I think great brands are insanely intentional about making sure that customer has themselves directly in the center of your messaging, that they see themselves on, on the journey, that right. they see what you're gonna do for them. Donald Trump, love him or not, was very clear. He was going to make America great again. Jeb had an exclamation point. And I think understanding who the audience is that you serve is one of the hardest things to articulate regardless of where you're at in your business. You're like, you're teeing these up beautifully for me. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> you're like Stockton, I'm Malone. Remember John Stockton and Carl yes. Malone? You're like yes. Stockton to Malone. I met Carl Malone once when I was in Utah. For, did you? Yes, I did. I interrupted <laughs> you, I'm sorry, Amy, but I'm so excited to address this, keep going. Well, no, I was just gonna say, understanding who our target audience is can make or break how well our brand survives. Yeah. If we don't understand who we are speaking to, there is no way for us to be able to craft a message or build any marketing tactic that will resonate. If I'm speaking to someone and they are not my audience, they're not going to care. If I'm speaking to somebody and they are my audience and I've got my messaging down really well, they're going to feel as though I am speaking only to them, even though I might be speaking to 500 of them. Or 500,000 of them. Exactly. Um, thank you, thank you, John Stockton. You're um, very welcome. I'm, har I'm far Malone. from Carl Malone or John <laughs> Stockton. You know, the first book that I wrote is called Management Mess to Leadership Success. The third book that I've authored coming out in May of 2021 is called Marketing Mess, to brand success, 30 challenges to build your organizations and your own brand. I share a couple of insights around that very topic you just mentioned, here they are. One of my close friends is Seth Godin. Of course, everybody knows who Seth Godin is. And Seth wrote a genius book called This Is Marketing about a year and a half ago. Yep, it's a I've must read. buy for your audience. And in the book, he talks about this concept called your smallest viable market. And I think this is one of the most profound but missed marketing-isms out there. 
And that is really understanding what is your smallest viable market. Most marketers go into it thinking, what is the largest viable market, right? What is the largest addressable market? How many people? Franklin Covey knows there are 49,682 companies that are 500 employees or more in America. And wow. we sometimes wrongly think that all 49,562 are our clients. Well, they're not. That's the largest addressable market. And Seth will tell you that's the opposite strategy. What is the smallest viable market? Who is the first person? Who is the next person that's going to, quote, buy your Afghan or subscribe to your module or come to your hair salon? Who is the first person? Then who is the second person? And then who is the third person? And it's so counterintuitive, so frustrating, so limiting, but it's all so genius because then you craft the message that meets the person in, in that particular spot, right? Clayton Christensen, the famed marketing professor from Harvard Business School, passed away a year ago, famed from all of his work on Innovator's Dilemma, Innovator's Solution, wrote the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Phenomenal book. Highly recommend the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? He talked about and popularized this idea of the job to be done, right? And it was actually a, a, an idea popularized before him. But Clayton would talk about all the time, people aren't buying an eight-inch drill. They're buying an eight-inch hole or a six-inch hole, right? What, what they're really buying is they want their flat screen TV hung on their wall. So you think you're selling six-inch drills. No, you're selling six-inch holes. And so you bring up the point is deliberate marketers get really thoughtful in understanding what is the circumstance that my buyer is in. Exactly. Well, and that goes back to what Donald Miller says in StoryBrand as well, of understanding the three levels of problems that your audience has, the external, the internal, and the philosophical. You know, if I'm buying a car, my reason for buying a car is going to be very different than your reason for buying a car. I might be buying a car because I have a 14-year-old who wants to drive, and I'm going to give her my old car. Hopefully, she doesn't listen to this because it's not going to happen. But I'm going to give her my car and I'm going to get a new car for me. You might be in there to buy a car because you were just in an accident and now you need a car to replace the one that was just damaged. If I'm the salesperson, I can't sell using the same messaging or the same tactics or the same language to you as what I can use with me. Yeah. Because yeah. our needs are completely yeah. different. Amy, so well said, so well said. I used to consult for a chiropractor, helping him build his marketing business. And business was good. But after we, after we applied the very concept you just explained, we realized that his business could explode if he decided to focus on workers' compensation issues, right? Yep. And he became a number one referred chiropractor in the state of Florida with his clinics because he focused on the smallest viable market, which was just workers' compensation. He had, he had all kinds of other things, walk-ins and things, but his business exploded beyond capacity. He couldn't handle it all because he got serious about a, a particular circumstance. By the way, there were a dozen circumstances he could have focused on, but he picked one and owned it, and business was like a rocket ship. Yep. Now, the other thing that, that I coach my clients in doing is when they have that opportunity of, multiple areas that they could focus on that they also need to think about themselves in that instance because they need to pick the one that they're going to be the most rewarded in serving because if they pick the one that annoys them they are never going to be happy in the work that they're doing and it's going to be a poor reflection on their brand if they pick the one that they like and they they want to deal with day in day out they will be happy in the work that they're doing and their brand will reflect it so well said. Superb advice. How about when, when we're at a point of finding those new people, what, what are the one or two things that you feel a brand really needs to do well when it comes to putting themselves out there for new business and business development? A couple thoughts come to mind, right? Is I think there's a case where Lots of times there's, you know, a solution searching for a problem and we get caught up in our own expertise what we're passionate about and we think because we are obsessed with it, everyone else should be as well. And I might, you know, this isn't profound, but it's certainly replicable. For those of you who are entrepreneurs or solopreneurs or in any form of business is really, you know, have a bit of an ego enema. 
is, are you solving the right problem? Is your passion aimed at the biggest problem or an intractable problem or a problem that people are willing to solve? A lot of people have problems that they're not willing to solve because it's not painful enough. No matter how much you convince them, if it's not painful enough, they're not going to choose to solve it, right? It's kind of like I once heard this adage that when does the hound dog move off the nail he's sitting on on the front porch? <laughs> when it's painful enough. <laughs> That's when he moves off, right? Otherwise, he just sits there and howls all day long. But at some point, no, so you get the adage. I, I, don't, I don't tell Southern folklore very well. So pardon my delivery. But I think that's, a, that's, I see that a lot, right? Is because the entrepreneur is passionate about it does not mean the market is. So make sure that you're checking your ego and that you're listening carefully to where are the pain points? What are people willing to solve? What are the problems that they're willing to solve? I also learned another great lesson that has really shaped how I lead, how I'm building my own business, how I led, you know, this global brand. And that is in this book I mentioned earlier, Amy, called How Will You Measure Your Life? Clayton Christensen co-wrote it with Karen Dillon. Karen Dillon is the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. And in this book, they took business principles and taught people how to apply them in our personal lives. Genius book. And here's one of the research studies they quoted. I think this is profound. They said that, um, they quoted an empirical research study that said that when an organization achieved success, and I put success in quotation marks, and how success was defined was that they had achieved their publicly stated financial goals. So when an organization achieved success, it happened 93% of the time through an emergent strategy, not a deliberate strategy, meaning deliberate strategy was the original strategy they launched with, a product, a strategy, a value proposition. That 93% of the time, these companies achieved success with a different strategy than the one they set out with. 93% of the time, only 7% of organizations that achieved financial success did so with their original idea. And that 93% had to pivot. They had to adapt. That means that the leader, the founder, the owner, the whoever has to be agile. They have to be nimble in their thinking. They have to show humility. They have to be willing to listen. They have to move off perhaps their obsession. Now, there are a lot of businesses that were founded because the owner was obsessed with an idea and she was right over time. Spanx, right? Sarah Blakely, whoever it is, right? Musk, right? From Tesla. Although Tesla wasn't, of course, his early venture. It was PayPal, right? Yep. And a bunch of other startups. But I think it's so instructive to your listeners to be really thoughtful around, are, do you have the humility and the nimbleness and the agility and the confidence to turn your head and say, is this the right idea? Is this what my clients need? Maybe they need something else. Maybe it's a twist on an idea. And, and Maybe that isn't profound. I think it is. I think the most successful entrepreneurs and marketers are those that are willing to change their mind and maybe listen to someone that might be smarter or have a different point of view than you. I think it's really interesting, too, because I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek and his principles of start with why. And as you were saying that, it, the idea that or the example that came to mind from his book is Gateway. And Gateway positioned themselves solely as a manufacturer of computers. And they tried to sell televisions. And nobody believed that they were a viable source for televisions, even though a television is exactly the same as what a flat panel monitor is for a computer. But because they had so firmly rooted themselves into the computer marketplace, their audience couldn't see that there was a really a seamless transition between the two entities or the two ideas, really. It's the same technology. You're just using it for a different purpose. Yeah, yeah. And they couldn't get it. They saw an opportunity, but they didn't figure out how to leverage it in a way that made them successful. And I think what you were just saying is similar in that Gateway had another idea. They just yeah. didn't figure out how to execute it. Whereas when you pivot, you pivot at a point of, okay, how can I take something that I'm currently doing and make it work better for those that I know can use it? 
your example again is a perfect setup. A couple of thoughts. I like you. I, I can write a book with you. We should write a marketing book. We All right, I'm game. Let's do it. Stand by. A uh, couple of thoughts. Your 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 gateway example is a, is, a, is a perfect setup for a couple of thoughts. One, if you know the science shows that 93% of successful organizations do so with an emergent strategy, then you make a variety of decisions. You hold some capital back. You hold some enthusiasm back, right? You hold some cash or emotional energy back. Because if you go all in on your one strategy and it doesn't work and then you learn something about where you should be going, you're out of runway, you're out of cash, you're out of employee energy, right? So you also don't wanna hold everything back because you also wanna believe in your product, right? Or your launch. There's this delicate tension between emergent and deliberate. I, uh, I, I saw a great interview a few months ago and I included it in my book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. It was around Roomba. Uh, Roomba was originally called iSuck. <laughs> I-S-U-C-K. iSuck. That's I'm a horrible sure. name. <laughs> I know, I'm pretty sure. And what's interesting is before the Roomba took off, they were starting to sell them and they were having like this um, extraordinarily abnormal amount of them like burning out, like the motors were burning out and, and none of it correlated to all the testing they had done. And so they started to scratch their heads. And they realized, why are all these Roombas being like returned and the engines are burning out? I may have that story a little bit wrong, but directionally it's accurate. What they learned was, is that early on, the majority of people buying the Roomba, formerly called ISOC, was, um, were being bought by heart patients. Because people that recovered from heart surgery weren't allowed to vacuum their, their homes because of okay. the exertion. Yeah. And, they, and because they couldn't leave their homes, they had guests in. So they wanted to have their homes always nicely vacuumed. So these heart patients were running their Roombas three and four times a day, partly for companionship, but also because they weren't allowed to run a vacuum cleaner. And so they realized that it wasn't being used for what their intended purpose was, but they found this whole niche market on these like heart patients, right? Or people that were lonely, that wanted an iRobot, or a, 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 um, I think the company's called iRobot, like the parent company. Yeah. But they realized that on many cases, people were buying Roombas. That's really interesting. And, and most people were naming them. They were naming their Roomba. They, it was a companion. So many examples of that, right? Where if you're really listening, and you're looking at the customer journey and you're plotting the customer journey and you're watching, you can adopt that emergent strategy. And so a lot of people, and I don't know how the Roomba company adopted their brand strategy, but I am sure that part of it was companionship. That is very interesting. And there's so many examples like that, right? Of maybe Roomba admit, which is they come to it a little bit sooner. Like I said, I, I, don't, I didn't take any license, but I think directionally that story is true. Right. There's so much to be learned from that of, can you check your ego, create some humility, be more concerned with what is right than being right. If you're more concerned with what is right, what is right for your customer, what is right for the organization, what is right for the marketplace, you'll end up being right. But if you're more concerned with being right, good luck to you. Yeah. So Scott, let's let's talk a little bit about pivots in brands because I think if anything that 2020 has taught us right now, pivoting is and has been critical to the success or failure if they've not pivoted for a lot of businesses. And what are your what are your thoughts about pivoting? How do you do yeah. it well? Yeah, yeah. Um, th there's a couple of things, and these can be applied at multinationals as well as small entrepreneurials. I I've used these words a lot, Amy, and I want to repeat them. Agility and nimbleness. And I think it comes from the top, right? If you're entrenched in your mindset, in your paradigm, in your systems, you're never going to pivot. Look at Airbnb. Airbnb did a masterful job of pivoting back in, I don't know, March or April, whatever it was. It was like an online hotel booking company. So maybe it wasn't Airbnb. I, I apologize. Here was the point, is that this organization realized that people weren't flying around the nation for hotels anymore, but people did want to go and stay at a small boutique hotel 
they wanted to rent a house five miles away for like a break from the monotony of their home. And they pivoted and they recruited a bunch of more properties that were like, you know, cabins and maybe vacation homes that people could drive five miles to. The people weren't flying 500 miles. And right. because that, because the organization, I think it was Airbnb, because they were able to pivot with their inventory so fast that they actually survived because people were just as interested in going on a trip. They just wanted to go five miles away and have a break of the monotony somewhere. And so that, that organization, I think the CEO was quoted, I never thought I'd have to make five years of decisions in like five days or five weeks, right? I mean, but because he happened to be a male, he was so willing to turn on a dime and pivot, but I'll bet you he and his leaders had built the capacity around them to check their arrogance, you know, increase their humility and focus on what can change versus trying to prove their principle right or hunker down or lay everybody off. I'm sure they had layoffs, but I thought it was a good instructive example of this is now a business principle that everyone will have to align to, which is agility is everything. Is how nimble are you? Are, are you able to respond on a dime? Not, not flush everything, right? Because, you know, our world's going to come back to some level of normalcy, right? There's, people are going to fly again. People are going to uh, – it'll come back. It'll look different, right? But it's going to come back. We're going to go to conferences. I think it's all about your own arrogance and your own ability to focus on what's right, not being right. Well, and I think there's a level of which the arrogance and confidence gets confused. Some people will yeah. say that you need to be confident in who you are as a brand and what you stand for and what you do and what you do right and what you do well for your, your customers. And for some, they may view that as arrogance, but really it's confidence. But there is that, that line that you can cross when it goes into arrogance. And knowing where yeah. that line is and being yeah. careful to not step over it in a way that is detrimental to your brand is very important. Seth Godin taught it to me as being reckless or fearless. And too often, sometimes we, we confuse the two, right? We think we're being fearless, but we're being reckless with our own brands, yeah. with our company's brands, with our customers. I've learned a lot from Seth and I'm much more deliberate of when I thought I was being fearless and I was maybe being a little bit reckless as well. I bring it back to when you understand the purpose of your company, which is the core of your, of your brand, you have bumpers that are set up or you have boundaries that are set up for you and you know where you can push them, but you know that if you break through them, that's a problem. If you want an excellent example of that, watch QVC. Your, your, your customers might think I'm insane. I watch QVC every night for a half an hour, every night. It's like, that is my professional development, QVC, really? for a variety of reasons. I'm a public speaker, so I like to try to eliminate my ums and my uhs and you knows and she knows and he goes and he was like, right? Generally, those guests or the guests, the host are very well spoken, but if you want to talk about how they can articulate a value proposition on a product and emerge it and adapt it for new circumstances, QVC. I mean, some of your listeners might think I'm insane. You'll be addicted to it. By the way, I've never bought anything on QVC. Not once in my life. Not once. Every night I want to buy five things. If you come to my house tonight, I'm going to be in bed at 8.45 with my wife and our three sons. And we're all going to be watching QVC. It's hysterical because we're kind of addicted to it because we like to see how they're positioning and how they're marketing it and how are they selling the steaks this week different than they were selling them last week and how is the Dyson vacuum better this week than it was last week. And it's so instructive to see how adaptive those hosts are That's for true. the different audiences, right? They, can, they can't be selling it the same way this week as At, what they did last week because right. nobody would why would they buy another one then? That's right. And, and the audience at 2 p.m. is different than the audience at 9 p.m., right? It's, and they're selling the same thing. Exactly. It, it, I think it's one of the best marketing educations you can get. And then go compare it to HSN, your home shopping network. And just look at the differences in terms of how they brand it, how they position it, how they merchandise it, how the host. It's just fascinating. 
my most favorite episode was one of the hosts was selling Bibles two weeks ago. They were selling Bibles on QVC. I, I tell you, there's a lot to learn from QVC. It sounds like I'm missing out on something. <laughs> You're not, <laughs> but it's kind of our family's secret pleasure now. <laughs> I, I mean, we watch Shark Tank all the time, which I, yes. I love to watch that. I, I, you know what? I can't watch it because I, after solving problems all day long, I can't watch drama at night. I can't watch any like, you know, NCIS or any hospital shows. I can't do any kidnappings or bombings or terrorists. I got to have like calm. And there's no conflict on QVCs. <laughs> well, true. True enough. There definitely is not. So, Scott, I want to wrap this up because I've taken quite a bit of your time. With no, because I went off on a QVC crazy, uh, crazy train. That's why you got to wrap it up. Yeah. This guy's talking QVC nuts. I'm not, I don't think I want to talk to him anymore. Um, if, you were, <laughs> if you were to give <laughs> one or two key pieces of advice to someone who is starting their business now, and they are working to establish their brand in such a way that aligns with their purpose and that they feel good about. What would you, what would you tell them are the key things that they need to have in place to be successful? Well, I mentioned the one is trust, right? Is, is be thoughtful not to overpromise and underdeliver. And I fall in that trap all the time. I'll be tell you, um, very high-end hotel chain wants to hire me to keen out all of their properties. And I promise them a proposal five days ago. And this is a confession. And I haven't given it to them. They're like, you have a chance for 17 keynotes or 25 keynotes? I, I've overpromised and I've underdelivered. I've got to get in there and write the proposal. But I'm but I'm like all of us, I'm tempted for the next thing, right? And the next thing too. So one is over under promise and over deliver. I mentioned the trust. Second is brands aren't built overnight. There's no such thing as overnight success. No such thing. I mean maybe like Lorena Bobbitt, overnight fame. Remember her from the 80s, right? Sorry for the example. But I mean, there's no such thing as overnight success. There might be overnight fame. That doesn't last. Well, but there's no such thing. It's not what you want to be known for anyway. It, well, well said, considering Lorena Bobbitt, right? But I, I know a lot of, I mean, do you know who Rachel Hollis is? Yes. Girl, wash your face, right? Rachel's mm -hmm. a friend of mine. I know Rachel well. Rachel sold more books in America last year, second only to Michelle Obama. Rachel was a lifestyle food blogger for 15 years. No one knew about her. Rachel was a, you know, worked in the um, catering business, owned an events company. Rachel published six books that nobody ever heard about. And then she published Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing. And then she earned $100,000 a day overnight. I was meeting with Rachel in her office one day. I was doing a fireside. She read my book, liked it, and she brought me in. I spoke at her conference. And Rachel told me she was leaving that day to go give two keynotes, one on Thursday for $5,000 and one on Friday for $125,000 because her brand changed so fastly that she went from charging five grand to $125,000. Wow. That's all people see. People don't see her 18 years of all of her plant, planting the seeds. So when you're thinking about building a brand, first of all, watch Rachel Hollis's brand. It's quite remarkable. Men and women alike, watch her brand. She's had some rough times the last few months. Her, her marriage is ending, I think amicably, but her business has been in some turmoil. Um, welcome to life. There's no such thing as overnight success. You know, I've been working for 25 years, assimilating knowledge, right? Making mistakes some successes, some messes. And now after, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of writing, podcasting and speaking, I'm starting to build some influence. 25 years. So if you're building a brand, stick with it. Day in, day out, every day. Who's your file, smallest viable market? Imagine if you just focused on one customer a week. You'd have 52 customers at the end of the year. That's not too shabby. Maybe and then the next year you might have you know, gum, it might be shabby. It might be a problem. I don't, I don't advocate gum as, you know, a business model. I think Wrigley has got the wrap on that. Right. But exactly. Right. But imagine that. I think uh, it's frustrating. It can be daunting. It can be humiliating. I'll give you a perfect example. And I, I know, I know our time is ending. I just launched, and I don't mean this to be self-promotional at all. It's a good example. I just launched my own business. And my website is scottjeffreymiller.com. I am offering career coaching on it. Not one-to-one, -one, but on modules, right? $79. You 
you can register for my career coaching. You know, I got some reps. I got some, I got some success behind me. I sold three yesterday, subscriptions, right? Yeah. I sold one today. I sold seven on Saturday. I hope a year from now I'm selling 50 a day, right? Because I want to, I want to offer all of my insights for people who want to build their careers. I'm 52 years old. I've sold one today and it's 1.30 already. It's okay. It's going to take time. It's going to take several years. Be patient. Be patient. Every day, meet your promises. Don't overpromise and do what you say you're going to do. It will come. That's great. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that so much. I will put links into the show notes on how you can find Scott and also in for his uh, $79 coaching packages that he's doing, although I think the price is going up sometime here. And it then. is going up, but it's called Ignite Your Genius, and it's 11 coaching models based on my journey from the front line to the C-suite, and I'd be happy to honor that price. I priced it so low. Most people at my level, whatever level that is, Amy, are pricing these things in the four, five, six, seven hundred dollar range. I, I wanted this to be available to everybody who needs career coaching, including those who may not have a job. And seven nine dollars could be hard to come by, right? I wanted to make it available to everybody possible. Launching is February first. You can buy it now. You know it's available now. I'm not sure when your podcast airs, but thank you for giving me the platform today and the chance to talk about my own journey. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed our conversation a lot and I'm going to circle back with you sometime about that. Let's write a book together. I'll, I'll hold you to that. I've recorded I'll, it. I'll... It will live on forever. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Scott. So the other day I posted on LinkedIn about my service called the marketing director on call and I had a person reach out to me and say, hey, I don't know what this is. Can you tell me more about it? So I thought maybe I should tell you about it too. We're all familiar with a physician calling on another physician to help with a patient, right? That physician there calling is on call. My on-call service is the same thing. If you are responsible for marketing but have no one to brainstorm ideas with or have marketing responsibilities as, quote, other duties as assigned, or maybe you are a founder or a business owner who is looking to bootstrap as many business functions as possible until you've grown enough to hire a bigger team. Each of these roles may put you in a position to want to talk to an expert in marketing or branding. And you know what? That's me. And that's where the marketing director on call service is valuable. You drive the agenda. We brainstorm and strategize for an hour working out an action plan and you leave with clarity and confidence to make it happen. I'm on call for you. Your second opinion is a phone or now a Zoom call away. Check out the link in the show notes for more information about the marketing director on call service and also how to schedule a discovery call to, to find out if it's the right service for you. I look forward to hearing from you. This has been the Pursuit of Purpose podcast presented by Austin Marketing. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. Head over to amyaustinmarketing.com for links and resources mentioned in today's show, as well as ways to subscribe and connect with Amy. Thanks for listening.